gonna be in James 4, as we just heard, verses 13 through 16. And before I get into the specifics of, of those few verses, I wanna remind you of, of sort of the context we're in. And so we're in the book of James, who happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. So the guy writing this letter used to like share bunk beds with Jesus himself, which is pretty cool. And uh, you know, just so you remember, after Jesus died on the cross, he resurrected from the grave, he ascends, um, the birth of the church happens. And in Jerusalem, the church is like thriving. Thousands of people have come to believe in Jesus. And then um, persecution takes place, like violent persecution. And this persecution causes the church to scatter. And so James was there from the beginning. He watched that church come to life. And so he's a trusted friend. Everybody knows who James is. And he's writing letters to a scattered church. He's got a really timely message for a church that's been pretty disrupted. And so that's why we're in James. We feel like God has something for us because we feel very similar. Like we're a church that's been scattered unexpectedly and we need a trusted friend to share some powerful words with us. And so that's what we have in James himself. And so you know, as we're, as we're traveling through verses 13 through 16 today, I had a story come to mind uh, as I was just thinking about this passage. I remember um, I've been, I guess, working on some level at Ethos for nearly 10 years, maybe more. I don't really know. It's fuzzy. But I remember a couple years into my internship, you know, I'm just here, uh, I'm not getting paid, and I'm just like looking up to these full-time staff members just trying to fit in, you know, impress them so maybe one day I can get a part-time job, maybe even a full-time job. I'll let you know how that went later. And uh, anyway, so I, uh, I remember Brandon Steele walking into the office on Music Row when we were there, and he had this really cool announcement. Um, we already knew he and Courtney were expecting their first child, but he, he found out the due date. And so he came in and was like, hey, here's the date that I'm expecting my first child. And he told us the date. I don't remember when it was. When's family's birthday? 10-11-12. Something around 10, 11, 12, anyway. And so he told us, he told us uh, uh, Finley's birthday. And, and my first response to him telling us this amazing news about his firstborn was, shoot, I'm not gonna be in town. Do you think Courtney could push the date back? Or is there anything you can do to make it earlier? Because I'd love to be there for the birth of your first child. Now, I said all of that out of a good heart, but as you can hear, it may have been a little insensitive and maybe even a little self-centered. And so I remember a staff member who will remain anonymous gave me a glaring look and said something along the lines of, that was a pretty selfish comment at a time like this, right? Because <laughs> what I had done, I had this, this moment, I, I hope that I'm not the only one that's done this, maybe I am, but, but there was this moment where I made myself the main character of a story that wasn't mine, right? Like, that was Brain's story about his firstborn, he and Courtney in this amazing time of their life, and somehow I took that and made it about whether I would be there in person or not, <laughs> right? And so there's this tough moment. I think we've all had moments like this where you just kind of realize like, oh, that's right. Not everyone sees me as the main character. In fact, mostly everyone does not think I'm the main character in their story, right? But those are helpful moments where we realize life is bigger than me, right? It's, it's, it's bigger than my existence. There's Seven billion other people around here trying to figure out what life is all about, just like me. And in that way, we're all sort of on the same page and not everyone thinks I'm the main character and maybe I'm not even the main character of my own story, right? And, and I remember um, Dave told me this a few weeks ago and I'm sure I'll learn this in middle school at some point, but this guy named Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century discovered that the earth was not in fact the center of the universe that the sun did not orbit around us, but instead the earth actually orbited around the sun. And so humans learned for the first time, like, oh wait, like from a physical sense, humanity is not the actual center of the universe. Universe is not a word, <laughs> um, but universe is, and man is not the center of the universe. And so James is gonna conclude chapter four with a similar sentiment where He's kind of been talking about some things that are a product of self-centeredness, of being the main character 
of our own story. And he's gonna use these verses to humble us a little bit, to show us how small we are, juxtaposed to how big and how vast God is. And I think it's really good news to embrace this truth that we're pretty small, we're pretty finite, but God is the exact opposite. He is big and he is infinite. And so we're gonna dig into this passage verses 13 through 16, all right? We just heard it read, um, so I'll just go verse by verse. And if you're a diligent note taker, um, one, I'm sorry for every sermon I've ever preached because it's really hard (laughs) to follow along with how I teach. Um, But just to give you a heads up, this is one of those passages where I wanna work verse by verse. And after each verse, I'll give my own little custom subheading. So that can be your notes, okay? (laughs) My little subheading. So let's start with verse 13. And my little subheading for verse 13 is, what is not being said? All right, so I'm gonna reread it just so we're reminded of it. But it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so James gives a a real-life example. And as you keep reading the verses, it's clear that he's giving a negative example, right? He's showing what not to do. Now, since that's what we already kind of know after we read through verse 16, I want to make sure we, we don't hear something. So here's three things James is not trying to get us to hear, okay? First, James is not saying that plans are bad. He's not demonizing plans or being critical of plans. In in fact, in Luke 14, Jesus, when he's talking about discipleship, he talks about uh, what what if kings went to war? What if some people wanted to build a tower? Would they not first plan Would they not strategize and and develop plans to to build that tower or to go to war? Like, plans are really good, right? It's not, nowhere in Scripture does it demonize the idea of having a plan. I mean, we all understand this. We know that it's really helpful to have a calendar, right? To kind of know what's coming is a good thing. Like, we need to make sure that we plan and protect our office Zoom parties coming up. We can't wait to be there digitally, right? To celebrate Christmas on a screen, or it helps you create spaces of rest and relaxing. Calendars help you plan Sabbath, or they help you plan friend hangs and trips and not double book and all of that. Like, in fact, we probably all have growth areas where we could get better at planning and managing our calendars. There's wisdom in planning. So Jesus is not saying, or James, I'm sorry, is not saying that plans are bad. Uh, Secondly, um, he's not saying that financial goals are bad. We know that Jesus says the love of money is bad, like to to make an idol out of finances is bad, but there's nowhere in Scripture where it says the stewardship of resource, the stewardship of finances is evil. So we know that, that James is not demonizing the idea of making a profit. That's not what he's saying here. And number three, finally, he's not saying that thinking about the future is bad. Now, one thing Jesus does say is don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't let the things that haven't come yet and that aren't in your control like drive your mental state. Don't let them rock your heart or wreck your spiritual intimacy with God. So don't let tomorrow make you anxious. However, Jesus was not fearful of talking about the future, right? Like in the Gospels, how often does he allude to his his second coming? Or how often does he talk about the cross and his resurrection and the disciples are always like, what are you talking about? But in those moments, Jesus is talking about the future, right? Like those moments where he goes, hey, tomorrow you're going to walk here and find a guy carrying a jar. It's like, that's the future. Jesus was not shy of talking about the future. So James is not demonizing, thinking about the future. But now let's move to verse 14 and let's start getting into what is being said, all right? So verse 14, subheading, what is being said about you, about humanity? So verse 14, it starts with, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You just don't know. So the main takeaway I get there is, you are not in control of tomorrow. Now, any other year, I would have had to work hard to help you understand that this is true. But in 2020, 
I could stop right here and just move on, right? Because you are firmly aware that you are not in control of tomorrow. We literally don't know what tomorrow is going to look like or next week, and we're all thinking about it a lot. And so, you know, I think about um, how sweet and naive my, my wife and I were at the beginning of 2020. I remember one night we're laying down, we're about to fall asleep, and somehow we start talking about our financial goals for the year. And, you know, it, it's Looking back on it, what a sweet moment this was for Lee and I, because I, I pull out my phone, I get my calculator, and I start like doing the numbers. And as I'm doing the numbers, I'm like calculating the worst case scenario. And I got this like, like side grin in the dark. I'm pretty cocky. I'm like, man, babe. And I kind of show her the calculator. I'm like, this is the worst we can do. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Take as many vacations as you need. And, uh, and then March gets here, and there's a tornado, and there's a global pandemic. And all of a sudden, like, the worst case, we would have taken in a heartbeat, right? <laughs> like, we didn't reach the worst, my perceived worst case scenario, right? Because this year came, and it took us out of control. Like, we never had it, but we kind of maybe thought we did. Like, I'd love to ask you, like, how are your financial goals? for 2020. You know, some of you are in the in the real, like the hardship of it are like, you thought you'd have a job or maybe you moved to a city full of anticipation and like, man, the lockdown has made it really hard to find community and all these plans. I mean, from births of children and, and weddings and all of it looks so different. And have we ever been more aware that we are not in control? And I don't know what your life has looked like. Maybe the, the last three weeks of your life have looked relatively consistent and repeatable, and your brain's starting to recognize patterns, and slowly you're being lured into this belief that maybe, in fact, you do know exactly what tomorrow will look like, but James is trying to help us prevent that posture. Like, no matter how repetitive it's looked, no matter how many patterns you can recognize in your life, you just simply don't know what tomorrow holds. You're not in control. And in the second half of verse 14, he says, for you are a mist, you're a vapor. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. And in this, James is telling us, not only are you not in control, you will not last forever. Right? You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. Like, I was going to say in the nicest way. I don't know if this feels super nice, but in the most helpful way, he's saying, you're not that important. Like, there's so many people out here trying to figure out their life. And, and like, there were so many people before you. There's going to be so many people after you. Like, you're just a, you're just a mist. You're insignificant in that way. Now, we're going to get to the good part, so just hold on with me. But, but in this moment, he's going, hey, life goes on without you. Like, you came, you're going to die, and then other people are going to live, and then your great-grandchildren might know your name. Like, that's just kind of the reality. But I think we live in a culture that's really scared to think about death. But I think there's a place where death actually liberates us. It helps us see the importance of this moment because we are here for such a short time. Like, centuries ago, places of worship would actually place graveyards before the entrances of their doors. And so you'd have to walk through and see gravestones before going into worship. Talk about a call to worship. Just <laughs> graves, just graves. And, but, but there was this idea that to consider that you would die would greatly impact the plans you make now. That to consider the fact that you aren't forever would hopefully have a positive impact on how you choose to spend your time now because you will not go on forever. And so spend your time Wisely. Now, all I've said so far is that you're not in control and that you will die. And admittedly, that is not super cheerful. Um, but, but I believe James is doing something. If we'll hold on and actually take time to receive those truths. I'm not in control and I'm not forever. Because I believe that James is he's bringing us low in our humanity. He wants us to feel our temporary nature, the powerlessness that we possess on our own, so that, so that he can lift us up and how big and present God is. 
So he's bringing us low. We don't have power. We don't have control. But he's elevating how big and good God is. He wants to expand our horizons. Help us understand that while we are small, God is big. So let's move to verse 15. Verse 15 says, hold on, let me find it. Okay. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So verse 15 subheading, what is being said about God? So 13, what's not being said. 14, what's being said about humanity. And 15, what's being said about God. He's making a very simple point here, although it's rather complex as you explain it. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. In other words, God is the ultimate source of power. Nothing catches him by surprise. That God himself ordains, that God himself sustains, that God created existence. The reason that the earth revolves around the sun is because God said it so. God said it and so it is. That God is the main character of all stories and that God authored those stories, that we live in his story, that we're supporting roles. It's not a man's world. It's not a woman's world. It is God's universe. This is what Proverbs 19, 21 is getting at when it said, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God has the power. He's in control. So that's why in verse 16, When James talks about arrogance and pride, he goes, to leave God out, whether ignorantly or willingly, it's arrogant, it's prideful not to consider him. He goes, it's not what you've done, it's not your plans, your financial goals, you're thinking about the future, no, that's bad, it's when you leave God out of that, that's where you're missing it. Like when you see your life, when you picture your future, when you think about your future family, or your future kids, or your kids' kids, or your future job, or your future trips, God wants to be intimately involved in how you think about those things, both far off and soon. He wants to be the lens that we see through, that he desires to be so intimately involved in how we think about life. Like when someone asks us about our plans or or someone asks us about our goals, he wants to be in on that. Like we often think in our, when we look at our calendar, we go, man, do I have enough time for that? Do I have enough space? Or do I have enough finances for that? Do I have enough money for that? But how often do we ask ourselves? Is this the Lord's will? God, what do you want as I think about this? As I'm making my decisions, is this something that you have in your plans? Is this something that you desire? This is why James gives us the practical help in verse 15 where he goes, if the Lord wills. He's like, that's what you should say. And he's not saying that casually. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say like, well, if God wills it, and he just kind of skipped over it and it didn't feel very important. James isn't trying to give us a verbal version of a WWJD bracelet, which can be worn passively, right? He's going, no, like you should start thinking about this. Let this be the posture of your life that at the end of the day, all of my plans, all of my goals, all of my hopes, all of my dreams, I hold with open hands before the Lord and his will for my life. This is what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's arrested and crucified. He goes, here's my request. Will you remove this cup from me? If I'm planning it, remove the cup. But my posture above all else is your will be done. I see my life, my destiny through the lens of your will be done for your glory and for the sake of the world. That's what enabled Jesus to say that. So it's not just about us leaving God out. It's that when we leave God out, there's gonna be moments where God puts things before us that we'll simply miss because we never considered him in the first place. 
Like when our plans omit God, we'll miss moments along the way because we never considered him. We will pass by holy intersections without blinking because we weren't looking in the first place. James is going, don't make plans. Don't think about the future without including a God who wants to be deeply intimate in your plans. James is inviting us to consider God in our decision-making near and far off. And so this is rather simple an explanation, right? Like when you make plans, you know, just consider God. Think about him, but I know this can be complex as we try to figure this out. And so we're gonna have time to talk about this together um, after this teaching, and it's important to process this. But there's five areas of impact that I believe will, will happen as we consider God's sovereignty in our life, as we choose to include the Lord's will, as we think about the future. There's, there's more than five areas, but I've got five areas where I feel like this will really go to work on us. So if we'll choose to do this, to submit ourselves to the fact that God is the ultimate source of power, that at the end of the day, no matter what my plans are, he's in control. I believe this will impact us in five areas. First, it'll impact our sense of control, right? The first thing we're gonna feel is our lack of control. It reminds me of um, what Aaron said a, a few weeks ago. He was talking about how um, people love to be in control, and so in, in times of disarray or confusion, we tend to latch on to things that make us feel like we know what's going on, aka conspiracy theories, right? Like You don't have to go to too deep into a YouTube black hole to come across a pretty good conspiracy theory, right? And so um, there's just this idea that when humanity's out of control, we wanna latch onto things that give us control. Like we don't like admitting I'm not in full control. And so whether it's a, a Netflix show to, to binge watch, uh, whether it's swimming in apathy or swimming in busyness, whatever it is, we like to just find things that help us check out when we know we're not in control. But here's what I would invite you to do, is to sit in the presence of God and acknowledge God, I'm not in control. And that's such a good thing because you are in control. Like I'm not in control, but you are and you care for me and just sit with God and go, Lord, for a time, I'm just, instead of being frightened by the lack of control I have, I'm gonna thank you because you are in control and you care for me. You're not apathetically in control. You're not with a cold heart controlling everything. You, with the biggest heart for the world, you love people more than I could ever love people, you're in control. You've got all the power. So first, it'll go to work on our sense of control as we acknowledge that God is sovereign and we are not. Second, it'll go to work on our pride, just will, as we acknowledge his power and our, like it's confirmed, we don't have a ton of power. Like this global pandemic has exposed that in us as much as we wanna will something, like we just don't quite have it. It begins to cultivate this humility it's like this posture of open-handedness. Have you ever made plans and found that pride came right with them? Have you ever planned something and said, nothing is gonna get in my way of this plan? Like, everything can be interrupted, but this vacation is mine, <laughs> right? Like, or this thing on Friday night, or this thing, like, these plans are my thing, and anything that gets in, a, gets in the way of your plans coming to fruition, what do they become? Obstacles just to pass by, to overcome, to, like, to get past and leave them in the dust. And what will happen with this open-handedness is we'll no longer see this. It'll begin to impact how, we, how prideful we are and, and thirdly, how selfish we are. And instead of seeing obstacles as interruptions, we begin to see them as invitations from God himself. Like when we understand that, that it's God's will, then we have our plans, but as we remain open-handed, when there's obstacles, when there's interruptions in our life, we no longer see them as problems or things to get past, but instead going, God, did you put this here for a reason? That we won't miss that holy intersection because we weren't looking for God. Instead, we pause and go, I'm not gonna be selfish in this moment. I'm not gonna be prideful. There was something I was headed to, 
but this is here in the present. And God, is there anything you want here? It reminds me of the story where uh, Jesus is, is going to resurrect a child. And on his way, there's crowds surrounding him. He's on his way to resurrect a dead person. Just imagine the crowds being like, hey, he's about to do the thing again. Like, we gotta see this. And then a woman who had this, this problem of bleeding for several years reached out and touches his cloak and he stops. And he goes, who touched me? And on the way to something, he pauses. I believe the spirit firmly said, hey, stop, something important's going on. And he meets the woman, he's fully present with her and he heals the woman on his way to resurrect the child. And that's what I mean by like that pride and that selfishness as it slowly fades away and we go, God, it's your plan, it's your will, I'm open to what you're doing as I'm going from here to the next, as I'm going from town to town. And we begin to see things through the lens of God's sovereignty, knowing that this might be a moment, an invitation from God, not an interruption to what I had planned. Number four, it's gonna impact our trust. We don't tighten our, our fists in God's presence. We don't like, like do a trade with him and go, here, you take this and I'll hold on to this. Instead, we come before him open-handed knowing that anything that God asks for, it's for the sake of my soul, for the sake of the world, and for his glory. This is why Jesus got to say, remove this cup from me, but not my will. Because although he felt his instincts for survival, I believe like roaring in him, like get out, survive, do what you gotta do to do what's best for yourself. He understood that the Father's will was for the sake of the world. He could trust his Father 10 out of 10 times over his instincts and over his own plans. And so Jesus submits to the Father. It'll go to work on our trust. And fifth, it'll go to work on our hope. No longer do we hope in what we can accomplish no longer do we hope that circumstances line up just the right way and they never change. We begin to hope in a God who stands outside of time, who will come back, who ordains and sustains, who loves us perfectly, who's in full control, who takes, who takes naps while storms rage, who says, Father, forgive while he's being murdered. He's in complete control and we will place our hope in God alone. No election, no ending of a pandemic, God alone. At the end of the day, James is helping us see that the one we would hope would be in control in a situation like this is in fact in control. The one we can trust the most, the one that we would hope we could put our hope in, we in fact can because God is sovereign, he's loving, he's in control. And so as we tra transition to worship, after worship, we'll have a time to, to process some of this together. And so there's just a few things I want you to begin circulating in your heart and mind and praying about over your own life. Take time to process this. What role, what role does God actively have in your life as you're making decisions? I feel like this is a, a question that's simple to ask, but a little complex to answer. Like, God, what role do you have as I make decisions? And not just decisions about like calling and like something really far off, but like in my day-to-day, -day, like this week, what role do you play as I make decisions? Am I living arrogantly, not even considering that you might have a thought for this? Am I telling you what I'm doing or am I allowing you to, to dictate what I'm doing? And to sit down and just to ask that question and then, and then go, what are some practical ways that I can begin partnering with the Holy Spirit who's been promised to me as I make decisions? And even talk through, man, where's it challenging to do this? And just process this together. Because I believe that if God will have our hearts, if we'll give him our wills and go, these are my plans, but I hold them with open hands, 
I believe he will slowly begin to make all this make sense, why this is just a much better way to live, to submit to his will in our day-to-day decisions. In James uh, 4, 17, you might have noticed we didn't read it, but I'll read it to you briefly. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. And that can feel a little daunting, a little scary, like, okay, if I don't do the right thing, it's a sin. But really, this is an invitation that if we will sit with open hands and ask God for His will and ask Him to be just an intimate part of our plans, I believe the Holy Spirit will speak. And so it will give us a chance at obedience. So I just want to encourage you that if the Holy Spirit speaks to you today, obey it. Like, don't wait till tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but for today, obey it and see what God does with our obedience, with our open hands. And so I'm gonna pray over us. We'll worship, then I encourage you, whether you're on your own or with a group of people, to take time to journal this, to process it out loud, whatever it looks like for you to take this teaching and apply it to your life. I really encourage you to do that. So let me pray over us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for wanting to be a part of our our planning. Thank you, God, for for being a part of our decision-making. Thank you for how you honor it. Lord, where you just help good conversation to happen, Lord. For those that are on their own, I pray for just an awesome session of like journaling or praying to you, Lord, where things begin to become clear. For those that are with a group, I pray that people are bold and courageous and just share openly what they're feeling, what they're thinking about, what they sense the Holy Spirit saying. Um, For now, Lord, we we press pause on this teaching briefly to just to worship you, Lord. You are the sovereign God in full control and full power. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.